Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 135 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Natasha DeTaran. Natasha is co-author of the book, The Payoff. She spent two decades of her career on trading floors and was the head of corporate affairs at Swift for eight years. In the next hour, you're going to learn how changing the way we pay for things actually changes everything about the society we live in and the way it functions how payments actually work and the intricate network of systems that your money goes through each and every time you tap your card or enter your PIN number, whether or not things like contactless Apple Pay and Buy Now Pay Later are making us think less and spend more, whether or not Natasha thinks that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies have merit and so much more. I said to Natasha just after we finished recording this conversation that In the same way that her book brings to life payments and makes what seems like a dry and a boring topic really interesting and really accessible, I think that Natasha's time on this conversation here does exactly that. This was a really interesting and a really fun conversation to have, and I know it's one you're going to enjoy. But just before then, very excited to let you know that this week I was able to confirm that conversation I told you about a few weeks ago with Ali Abdo. I'm going to be going to London and recording with him in person in October. Very excited for that conversation. And then, of course, hot on the heels of that conversation will be the chat that I'm going to be having with Paul Moore in November. That's going to be another in-person recording. These two guys are super interesting. These are going to be incredible conversations and incredible episodes. And so if you're new here and you haven't already, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to this podcast right now. These conversations you don't want to miss. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 135 of Life and Lessons with Natasha Deterran. So Natasha Taran, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're going to talk a bit today about payments, this thing that impacts all of our lives, but this thing that we perhaps don't pay that much attention to. Um, and so whilst we're going to get a little bit into the weeds today, before we do, I want to ask you a question, which is perhaps a bit overly simplistic, but one which I think is important, right? Because asking people like me to define what a payment is, is like asking a fish to define what water is. It's all around us. We don't think about it. It's just this part of our lives. So perhaps we can start here. What actually is a payment? A payment is a means of transferring value from A to B. And we do that because we're settling debts. So I want to buy something from you. um, And therefore, if, if I took that thing, I would incur a debt to you and I need to settle that. So a payment, um, it, it, breaking it down is two or three different things. One, it's 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 a societal convention. And so in our case, do the two of us accept accept the same means of payment? But I suppose so. The means the same way of transferring value. But I suppose before that, we need to agree on a common asset that we're going to accept. So we're both um, living in Wales, as it happens, and we both use sterling. So we're both agreed that we'll pay and receive by sterling, and. We then have to agree whether it's going to be a bank transfer, whether it's going to be in cash and so on and so forth. Again, we both live in the UK, so we will have several different means, in fact, probably, depending on what you use to settle that debt. We could meet up and, and hand over notes. Uh, we could make bank transfers. We might have payment apps. We might have wallets. Um, so that we would, so it's those two things. If, if, if you like, it's the instrument 
Uh, and well, it's the three things. One is the need because no one pays unless they need to. <laughs> um, secondly, uh, it's the asset. And thirdly, it's the convention. And a convention has now grown into a system, a system or multiple, which is itself composed of multiple systems. So the UK has a payment system in capitals, if you will, which is the system that allows my pound to, to move from my bank to your pound at your bank. Um, but along the way, there's, there are many systems behind that enable that, that process to happen. And so where did this, this contemporary idea of payments come from? Um, I imagine one day back in the past, somebody would trade a sheep for a, I don't know, insert thing here. But at some point we switched to, like you say, to these, these common currencies, these common accepted payment methods. Where is the, the furthest point in history where we see something that resembles kind of like what we have today? Well, there's, I think there's lots of argument about when exactly it was. Um, but you know, the, the idea of the, you know, the sheep being exchanged for the vegetables, let's say, um, you have to have the double coincidence of once, which is, which is substantially imperfect because we're both in Wales and there's lots of sheep and vegetables <laughs> and probably a need for some other kit. So you need to have an efficient way to transfer value, firstly within a compact society and then within a less compact society. Um, and when I'm compact, I'm distanced or, or proximate. Um, but there's evidence of all sorts of things being used, whether it's seashells, whether it's stone tallies and all, all sorts of things, which are sometimes work more as measures, if you like, um, than the sort of transactional um, tools that we have today. Um, a modern society couldn't have happened without the progress that there has been in payments. And looking back into, you know, in the medieval Ages, if you ask the question, would you need, you know, would contactless payments be useful? <laughs> it would have been a ridiculous question to ask because it would have been so distant from them. So when you think about future payments, you know, some of the work that's been done in the payments industry to develop new tools, sometimes you, you sit there and you think, well, what's the, you know, what, what's the need? And sometimes the industry comes up with innovations that then create business opportunities and business techniques and so forth. Uh, so it's a fascinating, it's a, it's a very fascinating world. Do you remember the last payment you made? Well, I can remember the last interesting payment I made. Um, I was on a train in Italy last week getting to the airport and the machines didn't work and the, um, the ticket office only took cash. So I had to get on the train without a ticket, which they said was fine. And then the ticket master came round and we were in a tunnel most of the way to the airport <laughs> and she was unable to take payment from any of my cards. And we went through, we went through a lot of my cards. Um, but then 10 minutes later, uh, having arrived at the airport and sort of got onto Wi-Fi, I then got three payments accepted on my cards, <laughs> my various cards, because I'd used three different ones. Um, so that was the, um, that shows some of the problems that you can have uh, with payments. So this is an interesting segue because um, between your money going into your bank, uh, sitting in your bank, and then eventually making it through three times, it seems, to this Italian railway company's bank, um, lots goes on, right? For you, generally, other than in this example where it sounds like an absolute faff, it would be a few seconds of your life that you do quite passively and habitually. And yet, as you hinted at in your first answer, there's a vast amount of infrastructure and systems that goes on to make that payment possible. So in the case of that payment that you made in Italy last week, what actually happened? How did the money get from your bank to theirs? 
Well, it might not have got there yet. Uh, I don't know whether it would have actually have actually hit their bank. And that's one of the interesting things that we don't think about as, as consumers. If there's um, people with shops uh, on this call or that run businesses, um, sorry, listening to this podcast, um, they're probably acutely aware of the time it takes for money to arrive actually in their bank to materialise in their bank account. And also um, they will be very aware of the delta between what you pay and what they receive. Um, and it's, um, unless it's a note, it's not a pound for a pound. Um, so it, your question, how, how many people are involved? That very much depends what instrument I've used. If I've used my debit card, there's less people involved than if I've used my credit card, depending actually. Um, I might have used um, a digital wallet um, and I might have sucked money out of my account into my digital wallet. And then my digital wallet might run on Visa or MasterCard's rails and they might, uh, you know, they might have an intermediary between them and themselves and the credit card uh, networks. So that there can be many people um, sitting along that chain, um, which is why when you pay a pound, the shopkeeper doesn't get a pound. They get 97 pence or 95 pence or 99.9 pence, depending on who they are and, and what sort of rates they need to need to pay in order to receive money. And so the, the subtitle of the book is, I think, the most interesting piece here, which is uh, the subtitle is Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything. And to me, particularly as somebody who hadn't really considered this stuff until I picked up your book, this is interesting because um, the effects of us habitually as individuals changing our individual payment habits and methods, even just in my lifetime, is is shifting so dramatically under our noses. And perhaps one of the most obvious moves of this recently was our step in the direction of being a slightly more cashless society. There was a lot of talk in the pandemic about the perceived dangers of our society moving towards being cash-free. And although what was being prophesized perhaps didn't quite come to fruition, um, it's definitely true, at least anecdotally in my experience, that far few far fewer, sorry, places now except cash. What are the implications or at least the potential implications when we reach that point of society being cashless? Well, I think we've already reached the point of needing to protect cash. Um, you may be aware there's, there's lots of efforts underway in the UK to define and, and put in place processes and rules for cash distribution, so ATMs or post offices giving, giving out cash, or shops giving cash back to, to hardwire the uh, access to cash for the future. Um, but access is no use unless there's acceptance. And that's, um, that's something that I think a lot of work will be done over a prolonged period of time to work out the final points of, of that. I think you have to step a take, take a step back. We have to take a step back and, uh, you said something um, interesting just before the call that payments have become quite inseparable from us, and you meant that in in, in another context. But payments are inseparable from the way that I mean that they're integral to the way that we live. So to participate in society, we need to be able to pay and be paid. We might be paid a very little, and we might have very little to pay with, but we need to to be able to do those things. Um, so we need to be able to access some form of money. Uh, cash is, is, is obviously one of those. We need to be able to store it somehow, which in cash, you know, cash is instance is, 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 is not ideal. It's in a wallet or under a mattress, uh, or in a bank. Um, and we need to be able to, to give it over to someone and exchange it for, you know, quite literally bread, 
bread and water, but hopefully a bit more than that. Um, so one of the things that we as a society and all of society have to consider is if we move to digital and some people don't come with us to digital or don't come with us to digital money, and those are two separate things, and don't or can't, you know, those are um, two things. How are we going to ensure that they still have a means of paying and being paid? And it is a society-wide problem. It's not something that's on the fringes because, frankly, if you can't, um, if you can't access money in any shape or form, then you steal or starve. Um, and I don't think well, none of us should want that. So we all have to think about that. Um, and some of the, the changes that would be necessary to, to enable a cashless society, but obviously you would have to have full digital inclusion and enablement. Um, you'd need to have offline capabilities unless we were to get to a situation where um, online was was freely accessible for and available to everybody uh, everywhere. Um, and we'd also need to make sure that there was societally wide confidence and satisfaction with the data and privacy questions around um, non-cash payments. And and I think where we see the holdouts on cash, there are those that are simply not comfortable with it because they're not attuned to digital and they, they feel safer handling cash for personal, you know, not because of some fear of um, being spied on or um, or otherwise. It's it's simply because that's how they like to operate. There's those that can't because they simply can't handle anything other than cash. Um, there's those that don't have the money uh, to you know, find it cheaper to, to use cash. And we can argue about whether it is cheaper ever to use cash. But, and then there is, there's a big, um, sort of, uh, group of people who, who are simply unhappy with the privacy aspects of the non-cash, uh, existence, which is another issue. And so you, there's a lot to resolve before you could go to a completely cashless society. And the United Kingdom is a long way from that. I think what's, um, in and around these discussions, it's it's it, it's a bit depressing because you do have the sort of the far ends of the discussion making the most noise. Those that want the world to go fully digital and say that everything's solvable, and on the other hand, you have those that are complete conspiracy theorists, holdouts uh, that won't that won't see progress. And personally, I'd, I'm not sure that in my lifetime we'll see the disappearance of cash, but I'm here to be proved wrong. <laughs> So ignoring those on both ends of the fringes and discussing those challenges that you just spoke of um, within, say, your lifetime, what do you think the easiest of those challenges or those obstacles is to overcome? And what do you think is the going to be the absolute last frontier, that hurdle that we just really struggle to ever get over before we are fully cashless? Mm, gosh, well, I'd like to think that digital enablement in and, and access uh, will be a, a very emphasised piece of work uh, that um, that governments and society works on because it's it's the digital or the analog um, the analog premium and there's often a talk about um, other premiums but the analog premium is is huge and if you, if you can't you know if you can't buy tickets digitally if you can't you can't search for price discovery um, digitally all all these things. 
are really, really problematic, not to mention, you know, education and a- access to information and so forth. So I would like to think that the digital one uh, would be the one that's solved and fast. Um, but then you still come down to data. And one thing I didn't touch on was cost and control. Um, so in in the world of credit cards and, and debit cards, depending on who you are as a merchant, you'll pay more or less um, for your for accepting card payments. And those costs will relate to the scale of your activity because obviously, you know, the more that you do, the the more you're able to negotiate optimal costs. Um, and the second one is the activity that you're engaged in. So I think if you, you know, if Sean, you were going to steal my credit card, uh, you might go to an Apple store, but you probably wouldn't run off to Tesco. But I prefer it if you didn't go to Tesco. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the likely incidents of um, of abuse in a supermarket are probably lower than they are, you know, in, in a gambling den, maybe in, um, you know, online pornography or um, or even in, a, you know, an electronic store. That might be where you'd head with my stolen credit card. So those sort of organizations pay more. Um, and, you know, that's that's a, a risk based some some mostly a risk based decision, um, which can be justified based on the amount of um, the amount of theft, fraud and um and so forth. Um, but there can also be moral decisions or ethical decisions that some of the companies can take. Uh, maybe you're not allowed to make a payment to Wikipedia, uh, which happened with the card networks or, or sorry, WikiLeaks. Um, or maybe you're not allowed to make payments to sex workers, or maybe you're not allowed to make payments to certain news outlets. And when you have very powerful payments companies, the, your democratic choice, you know, choices that you are able to make in a free democratic society are sort of taken away from you by organisations. And in, you know, in some aspects, you know, if it's a, if it's a search engine, well, it's not the end of the world. But actually, if it's if it's a it's a, pay, a means of payment, that starts to be problematic if you, if there's no alternatives. So I think there's there's a, a host of other things to that need to be ironed out. And it's particularly important to payments because it's a scale industry. You know, really is a scale, it's a scale of business. So the biggest will always, um, you know, will always tend towards monopoly. Um, and therefore that, you know, you can end up with one or two or, you know, sometimes three companies deciding. And then that's not a situation that I think we all want to be in. Even if we might agree with some of their moral principles, it's it's another thing to to say that their moral principles should um, should eradicate your democratic liberties. Do you see a near future where there are perhaps more payment processing companies? I looked at my friend Christian Owens, who's building Paddle dot com, and they are building this end to end. They're valued as something vast now, like $1.6 billion. Um, they started a few years ago because they are taking on the monopoly that is Apple being able to process all of its payments inside of its ecosystem. And there are these antitrust cases going on right now, which may topple that monopoly. Um, and therefore, we can arrive at the conclusion that that consumer choice will be good in that particular niche. As more and more and more of us rely on these very few systems, do you think that there is room for competition or will it just be the case that these big players will continue to grow exponentially and that's that? 
I think there's um well there's been a lot the emergence of a lot of competition in recent years in in different areas of payments and very little in others and then there's been a lot of concentration. I think at the moment we will see a lot of, you know, given the, the financial you know the economic conditions and the lower availability of VC funding and so forth, um, and probably some of the stretched um, business assumptions that some of the um, you know, some of the incomers came up with. Um, I think we'll see less in the near future. Um, I think the competition authorities, I and mean, we see them all over the world looking at different parts of the, of the payments world. Um, so I think they will be very energetic in, in payments and they will need to be, continue to be so because what's big, you know, what's small today can suddenly become very, very big in a very short space of time. And in China, the, you know, the two payments giants, which are steadily being sort of dismantled, if you will, by the Chinese government, um, they rose from, you know, zero to hero within, you know, 10, 15 years. They were basically running the, com- com- the country's economy and that's a big country. So. I think there needs to be enough competition and enough choice for us to be able to exert some, one, that we have some alternatives, we have some redundancy. Um, but I don't think it's an industry that can profit, you know, can, can usefully support an awful, an awful lot of competition at all the levels. So if we go back to this point of um, the the societal impacts of move it or just changing the way we pay generally right i look at high street banks closing uh, i'm from a small town in northamptonshire called corby uh, and when i was i don't know 15 years younger there were banks everywhere like every third shop on the high street was a bank uh, there's probably three banks in the high street now of a population of about seventy thousand people and that number will no doubt shrink further i look at atms disappearing um you know we spoke just before we started recording about my mum as an example she is predominantly cash based she has a bank card she relies on atms her options currently are a paid for atm in a corner shop near her house which never works or like a mile walk to go to another atm which sometimes works. And if it wasn't through the proxy of using uh, me or my brother who have access to the internet and things like Amazon, like her, her world would be very small, right? She would be able to transact with very few businesses um, and she would be able to venture not very far in doing so. Um, I read a stat, I forget whether it was in your book or whilst I was researching this, that 4% of UK adults do not have a bank account. And so that is 2.1 million people as of today right now who do not even have access to a bank account, let alone uh, digital literacy for those to use your phrase who either can't or won't get on board with digital what are the the wider societal dangers of millions of people being left behind oh gosh there's lots of stacked up in that question just one thing on the bank account i mean i think anyone that can identify themselves can get a basic bank account whether they know that's another matter and i think it is complicated now that they're not bank banks are not physically there on the high street, you wouldn't be able to go in and find out that you could get a basic bank account. Um, there, but you don't actually need a bank account to participate economically in, in the digital world or even in the card world. There are you know apps and, and other things. I think when you don't have any form of ID or accepted ID, and that can also sometimes include an address, a utility statement, all these, and those could cause huge problems from for, you know, from immigrants, those that are recently released from prison, those that, you know, haven't had any form of anything 
any kind of account when they reach the 18, age of 18 and leave home. So th- there are things that need to be done there so that the typical bank account o- opening process doesn't apply to digital wallet providers and so forth. But I think the digital wallet is um, is a fantastic concept. I think um, one of the problems that uh, one of the issues I see with some of the digital wallets is you know, quite recently, um, some of them have been developed to target precisely the, you know, the recently released from prison and the um, immigrants and those that haven't had bank accounts for what they perceive to be cost reasons. Um, but in fact, actually, when you load money onto a card, <laughs> when you pay money off, off some of those cards, you're charged. So while you and I might actually have free banking in our, you know, no wing, no bells and whistles current accounts, at HSBC or Barclays, people that are poorer than us might be paying more to to use their pounds in in card form. So I think that's kind of that is problematic, and and we need to. I think the the concept of the basic bank account I think is fantastic, and the obligation on high street banks to to provide them is 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 wonderful, um, and very very important. But I think we need to see the equivalent in a digital form. Then to the um, the question of getting those people digital that weren't before, I th- um, that aren't happy to, like your mother or, or my father. And my father does many things digitally. I'm not sure about your mother. Um, you know, he's happy to FaceTime. He uses Excel. He uses Word. He does FaceTime. He's you know, he's he's used a computer for the last probably used one for the last twenty years of his career, having started when personal computers didn't even exist. Um, and he's very uncomfortable with online banking. Um, the banks, like many others, when they developed, and like, and I think many of the fintechs, they're not typically thinking about the older generation when they're designing their interfaces, their um, uh, their apps, and so forth. Um, and the industries always um, look to look to get a customer young and keep them for a long time. So a lot of, if you look at a lot of the marketing, um, and if you go to a bank's website and see how they're trying how they present themselves is very much at the younger customer. It's not at the older customer. And when digital banking first came along, a lot of them didn't use it. A lot of them, many of the older generations started using it during lockdown, those that hadn't before. Um, but that isn't really a way to bring a service to your customer. <laughs> so the way to, you know, it's not, a gun to your head is not, is not the ideal way if, if, and so I would hope that some of them would rethink the way that they have expected their customers to start continue being their customers in a in a very different way than before. And I don't think enough attention has gone to that. There is a fantastic initiative called um, One Banks, I think it's, it's called, or One Hubs, um, which aims to actually go further than that. So aware that bank branches are closing and the ongoing need for face-to-face banking, they create these kiosks or hubs or so forth in towns, which can be occupied, if you like, virtually occupied by multiple banks, um, but which uh, you know have faces and people to speak to. And there are sort of middle of the middle way of enabling people like your mother and my father to get into digital banking, gain confidence. And to see what they can do with it, as opposed to, you know, just being sent an email or a letter in the post saying from now on, you know, you get your statements online or you have to pay five pounds to get them by post, uh, which which isn't really the way you should treat customers. 
even if one can understand why the banks have done this from an efficiency point of view, from a possibility point of view, um, one can fully understand why they've done it. Um, but they, I think they have missed a trick in ignoring the older customer. And I think if, if, if a single bank went out there to to service that older customer base, which is a very important customer base for many reasons, but one of them, one of the key reasons is they have the money. So if if you want to be able to lend that money as a bank, you need to have money. And if you don't have the older customer's money, then you aren't lending to younger customers. I smile because I literally got one of those. We're going paperless letters yesterday. Um, I spoke a few weeks back on here to Rory Sutherland, behavioral scientist, um, and he claims that short of a pandemic, which like you say is essentially a gun to the head when it comes to behavior change, the two ways that we as consumers, as humans change our behavior is through either habit or social copying. So either we will continue to do what we have always done, or we will copy what other people do when in doubt. For this untapped older generation who perhaps aren't yet confident with digital, are there any ways that you've seen of how a bank or banks plural are enabling them to either get into the habit of being digital or showing case studies of other people being digital? Because I didn't clock until you said it. You're completely right. Bank marketing is 22 year olds carrying boxes, looking happy with their new home. It's not Fred, the, you know, 71 year old. No, um, no. I mean, I think they've been, as I said, they've been incredibly lazy. They've been very, very lucky to have people like me and you, um, to help our parents deal with digital banking. Um, and I think during the pandemic, vast ways of the, of the population were helping other ways of the population deal with, deal with that and other aspects of technology, I imagine as well. Um, so apart from one banks, I haven't, I, I think in Spain where there's, um, so Spain has been very, has a, has a, the UK is skewed old, but Spain is skewed old. Um, a bit more. Um, and they've been much more tuned there, it seems to me, of the, all the problems that this presents. Um, not just, not just banking, but in all sorts of ways, you know, travel, the way that, um, all sorts of, um, um, I don't know, parts of, um, like general life are skewed young and the impact that has, you know, whether it's actually just, you know, the working age or employment habits, um, there's a tendency to, to want to employ young. And actually, if, you know, if we're living to 90, we need to work longer. And so what do you, you know, what do people do, uh, when they're, when they're reaching retirement age or not even reaching retirement age, but, you know, employers just want young people. Um, so there's been a lot more thinking there, a lot more public sector, private sector, um, collaboration. And there's some very interesting fintechs coming out of Spain looking at it, you know, how they can target the older generation. Um, and one particular one, um, which I, I don't think it's gone live yet. Um, that's a card. Um, it's, it's just, it's basically a loyalty card. Um, and you can use it, I think, if you're over 55, which in Spain is, um, defined as the older generation, rather worryingly for me as I near it. Um, so you as a, as a, as an older generation person, uh, have one of these loyalty cards, but it's your children or grandchildren that enjoy the benefits. And that's, this is sort of, you know, it's a wealth transfer mechanism. Um, and there has been, there is and has been a lot of intergenerational wealth transfer in Spain. They had a very bad crisis in, you know, post 2012, very prolonged and it, and a, a very high incidence of unemployment. And it, it, it was very much the older generation that was supporting the younger generation. So this sort of builds off that. 
and it's 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 very clever concept. But the idea is that with something very tangible, very easy to to think about, you're attract and, and very easy to use with with no risk, as it were, because it's not it's not in, involving you in more economic risk than you would have been not using the card. That it will attract um, some of the less con- digitally confident people into into digital use. When you say that it benefits the younger generation, is it a concept whereby the somebody in the older generation spends and say their grandkids are getting cash back, or is it how does that work? Yes. So if your if your mother um, or grandmother buys a saga holiday, you'd get saga cash back. I presume um, you would not need to spend the money with saga. Um, so I, th- I think with within the unit, you know, those that sub- the organisations that subscribe to the card. Um, you'd be able to use your money there. So you might want to spend it more in mother care or down at the pub. Um, so, so yes, that's basically how it works. You get the points and the points are, are money or prizes. That's really interesting. Um, so returning back to the UK for a second, there is this British stereotype. We were talking about this um, before we started recording, and I'm glad that you recognised the uh, the kind of tongue-in-cheek statement that it seems like everybody says when we're at the checkout in Tesco and we're paying by contactless. Um, and it's, it feels almost illegal to not say the words, oh, this is dangerous. It feels like I'm not spending real money as we transact in that way. Um, between contactless and things like Apple Pay, is there any truth in that? Are we spending more um, blindly now that there is less friction between even the, the few seconds we say between putting a pin number in and being contactless? Well, I know that I am, I and mean, I do have to correct myself and actually remember to look at the machine and what the number says, as opposed to just trust that it's what it, you know, what it, what it is. Um, I think the, the danger really is that we overspend and and that's a very real danger when you had to fumble in your pocket for change and the, found the bottom of the wallet was empty. Um, it was, or that, you know, you took out your allowance for the month for the, from the bank um, in cash and steadily chomped your way through it. Um, or as you saw yourself near in the end, you started to, you know, stop spending in the pub and save it for the milk you needed the next morning. You You don't have that visibility or that tangible kind of proximity to, um, the bottom of your wallet with um, the digital. But that said, um, uh, the apps and, and uh, you know, also depending on the settings that you choose to have can give you a very, very vivid picture um, of what you've spent and how you spent it. They can, um, I think mine are set up to trigger um, an alert every time I use them. And so I can, what I actually tend to do now is rather than look at the machine, I, I just look at my phone and check that the sum is more or less what I expected to have spent or exactly what I expected to spend. But that's a change in habits, isn't it? From taking a receipt, checking it, counting your pennies. Um, and it, it sort of brings us to who are payments designed for? Um, payments are designed, well, obviously they're designed for both sides, for both you and the merchant, but the merchant is the first order customer of the payment provider, not you. Um, and the merchant has to be convinced to change system and to pay for that system and every time it takes payments. And what does the merchant want to do? It wants to sell as much as possible, as quickly as possible, and get the money as quickly as possible. So clearly, contactless is much better for them um, than cards because you don't need a person necessarily. You know, contactless cards, you don't necessarily need a person. It can be very fast and it can encourage spending. Um depending on how much cash that merchant was taking, it was probably 
you know, I might have had someone looking at overlooking the, the, the teller to make sure the teller wasn't stealing money. There would have been security. There would have been transport to the bank. There would have been lodging costs at the bank. There would have been lost. I mean, if they held on to the cash over the night, there'd have been security risk, there'd have been lost interest, all sorts of things that make cash unideal in many aspects for merchants. And contactless, you know, kind of really exciting because many of us don't think when we're when we're spending and, and it can lead us to overspending. But that's, you know, contactless is, is probably going to be quite last year. Um quite soon when we when we think about it and you talked about amazon go um, before we we got on this um got on this call um and you know are we going to use fingerprints or eyes in the future to to make payments so we'll need to come around to understanding money in a different way i think in controlling costs in a different way to that that counting your shekels. So there many people precisely choose not to use cards or contact use cards, but not contactless precisely because of this danger of overspending and just not being in control, that lack of control. I have, uh, it's, it's a very basic system, but I've created a little system with myself recently for that exact reason, which is that I would say if I had to guess, probably 95% of my payments are done through Apple pay now. Um, and although, like you say, the number pops up on my screen afterwards, there's very little reason for me to log into my bank and keep track of things. So I've opened a Monzo account. I had to think there. That's how that's how unbrand loyal I am to this particular account. I opened a Monzo account a few months ago and I take a set amount of money from my current account each month. I put it in there um, and that's like the, the the money I can spend frivolously. And that's not to say that I don't un- overspend every now and then and transfer more money through. Um but it's just staggering the the difference between what I spend in, for example, two months ago, um, I didn't bother doing it at the beginning of the month. I didn't make the transfer. And so I didn't bother doing it until the, uh, for the whole month. I'm quite absolutist. I thought, you know what? I've got three days without doing my transfer. I'll just leave it for the month. The amount I spend when I'm not tracking that, when I don't have a yardstick that um, physically shows, you know, you're this far into your monthly spending budget and we have 19 days left. When I don't have that, it is... T- Genuinely, this sounds like an exaggeration. I'll probably spend double if I'm not keeping track of it. When it's coming from this, say, endless pool of money, but you know what I mean? When it's coming from this harder to measure, um, more opaque pool of money, because I don't know what budget is what, I absolutely fly through it. And so to your point, it's really interesting, these technologies, um, Amazon One Click, which I refuse to use just because it's, it's buggy right now. It sends things to wrong addresses and so on. But then Amazon Fresh going into store, picking things up. Um, are there prices? I don't remember if there are prices, but you walk out and then you get an email. Um, to, to build on your point, are we about to be pushed even further just as we're getting used to contactless, just as people like me are building these little systems in our lives to keep track of our money? Is technology about to push us further? I'm sure technology will push us further all the time. I don't think that's in any doubt. And there's so much investment and innovation around the area. Um, and you know, that's good. Uh, it's good, but I'm I'm t- I'm and I'm really fascinated by your comment on Monzo because I also have Monzo and I've got Revolut, and so does my father. Um, um, you like us are using it as a wallet in much the same way that in the old money days, Sean, <laughs> we would have a wallet and we'd have our twenty pound, fifty, twenty, and ten pound, and five pound notes and one pound notes. I'm even old enough to remember those. Um. And you would go through them and you'd be aware of how much spending you had. And maybe you went to the bank twice a month, depending on who you were. What, but what you carried around in your wallet was what you were going to spend. You didn't carry around more than that. And maybe it, you took it out on a month. As I said, 
you, you decided the the periodicity with which you withdrew the money, but it was money that was going to be spent. That was the purpose of having it. And I think the um, the idea of the digital wallet and using accounts like Monzo or Revolut as digital wallets, even though that's not what they necessarily want us to use them for, they'd rather use them, us use them as current accounts and um, mortgage providers and so forth. I think it's it, it's a, re- a really, really, really compelling and undersold case for them. And I think it's the the idea that you have your full month salary spendable, you know, immediately from your current account at a wave is is not something you want. And I, but I'm I'm interested that you also don't find the idea of being able to empty your your current account on a wave as a compelling attraction. Because I mean, a lot of when you when you look at a lot of the marketing around payments, including including to consumers, not just to merchants, it's all about frictionless. Um, now, my mother and your father, I'm sorry, your mother and my father are not probably very keen on frictionless because they've, you know, they've got a fair amount of money and they want to hold and a limited runway to earn any more, um, probably. Um, and, and they're very attuned to the fact that they really, you know, the idea of money leaving their, <laughs> their, uh, their account isn't, isn't a, a great idea. So that, and that brings me back to the marketing, this idea that paying away money very quickly is fantastic. Well, it is when you're taking the tube. It is when you're getting on the bus, buying a newspaper, buying a coffee. That's that's fine. Um, but it, it is limited to that. Those small purchases really that um, that waving is is most compelling. So I'm going to ask you to make a big general. Oh, I won't ask you to make a generalization, but my question is leading massively towards the realm of generalizations here. Um, I'll caveat it with that. But as we move into this direction of of less friction of things like Klarna, where it's like pretend money that you payback one day in some point in the future, contactless, um, all of this stuff. Are consumers really winning here? This illusion we're being sold that this is good for us as a, as a general measure of society, is this actually good for us? Or are we seeing things like debt per household tick up in line with these quote unquote innovations? Um, I don't know whether Net net debt, uh, household debt has triggered, has grown and how much of that you can attribute it to the likes of Klarna. Um, consumer credit is, um, you know, it's widely available. Um, there hasn't been a huge amount of competition in consumer credit, um, in the last, I don't know. In fact, there's probably been a contraction of, if, if anything. Um, and so the emergence of a new form of consumer lending, if you think um, consumer consumer should borrow, uh, must be a good thing. And we can talk about whether consumers should borrow um, to buy makeup or um, dresses or um, you know, electronics they don't need. Um, uh, we could also argue about the. I mean, so I think that's that, that's a separate problem. Um, and, and it is, it's a very real problem. Um, and it's a particular problem in the Anglo speaking countries. We all borrow an awful lot for, on consumer credit. Um, and that's not the way to run an economy sustainably over time. Um, as many people are finding now with rates going up, um, it's, it's tricky. And I think Klarna is finding it problematic with rates going up as well. <laughs> um, but you have the intersection of very many things with Klarna. You have a low level of financial literacy. So, and you have digital marketing and you have digital marketing of Klarna alongside digital marketing of, um, of frocks and, and makeup. And you have very fast, um, 
you know, very fast consumer behavior going on. So you've got a confluence, quite a toxic confluence of things. And to take one, you know, to, to hold Klarna to account for, you know, an 18 year old girl spending too much. Um, and not understanding what that she what she was doing, I, did, I think it's tricky to lay it all at um, at that industry's door. Um, I think the regulation needs to catch up and it needs to catch up fast. I think the most important thing is that we improve financial literacy, and I think the more that we move away from cash cash to other forms of money, um, the more important that is. And when you were paid a hundred pounds at the end of the month, you had no nothing left. Um, you kind of understood where you were. You knew that you were going to get another hundred pounds next month. Um, and if you needed to buy a fridge on the never never, so in order to make your, you know, your food last longer, that was a calculation you had to make. But now it's we're so divorced, or you can be so divorced from from all of that. And I think that you know you could be buying a loan on a credit on you know on your phone. And the amount of information you're going to absorb from your phone is just simply because of the size and the merit of the size of the screen and the, the rapidity which with, you, with which you can do things can mean you can get into very dangerous situations very quickly. On the other hand, you know, competition is, is good. Innovation is good. Um, but yeah, I, I, literacy, I, I, I can't understand, underscore how important one literacy, financial literacy is. And two, on the other hand, is, is the digital inclusion and digital access because, you know, you can get on and find a Monzo bank account and discover it's grateful and compare it and go to go compare in all these places and money supermarket. If you're not online, you can't do that. So you will have left, far less choice, far less information on which to, to, to make your choice. And chances are you'll be paying an, a, quite a considerable premium. For you know, uploading cash onto your card or or spending it off your card. So I've just started reading. I forget what it's called. Why can't we print more money? Or can't we just print more money? That book project from the Bank of England, and that's really interesting on this point of the importance of financial literacy. Because again, until I picked up your book, until I picked up that book, until I started delving ever so slightly into this world, um, I didn't realise the gap that exists between people who it's almost like the curse of knowledge. Right? We 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 find it hard to appreciate the world through the paradigm of somebody who doesn't know what we know. Um, and I see just from the intro, the foreword to that book that the Bank of England is doing an awful lot. They have an awful lot of um, initiatives, uh, outreach panels, community groups, a book. They've published a book for the public to explain yes, economics. Very good one. Um, I am enjoying it so far. How, how much do you think society needs to catch up? Of, of course, we've spoken a lot today about how these technologies, these payment platforms, these systems are flying ahead. Um, can we 60, 70 million people catch up? Well, you've got to, yes, you've got to hope that we can. Um, I mean, we need to. Um, and it's vastly unfair uh, if, if we don't. So we, we have to. I think the, the, the way that we teach um, about money needs to be changed. I think, I think everything that the Bank of England is doing is fantastic. Um, really fun. I don't know if you've seen their Beano stuff and, and so on and so forth. Um, but the Bank of England doesn't get to where it doesn't get beyond its interested audience. And it's the uninterested audience. It's the people sitting at the back of the classroom um, that need to be listening. And probably the more 
the more problems that you have with money at home, the less money that you have at home, the worse relationship you will have with it and the less interested you will be in money. But I've seen, um, and so you need to make it very tangible and very relevant to them, but also to the non-economists, people like me, who I'm, frankly, I'm an artist. So you need to make me interested. I'm not interested in a mortgage. I might be interested in how to buy a house, but let's think about that. <laughs> how many young people today are thinking that they can buy a house? So why in the 1970s and the 1960s, 50s, 40s, it must have been a really legitimate way to explain money. It really isn't today. And, so, and even if it was a sensible way, it, the way to start the conversation would, wouldn't have been, we're going to learn about mortgages today. Because someone that's interested in money, per se, is interested in how mortgages work. But somebody who's not interested in money doesn't want to know how, how insurance works or mortgages work. or they, they want to know how money works. And personally, I think it starts with paying. Um, but again, when I was looking at some recent educational material, I also saw that it, it started with notes and coins. <laughs> and I thought, well, <laughs> that's helpful up to a point. But seeing as many of these children won't be touching notes and coins ever and my daughter's 14 and she can't deal with notes and coins at all and she, as soon as she's she's given them uh, or earns them i get given them to put onto you know to bank into her account so i think we need to rethink education financial education and i think we need to make sure that it's the program is put together by people who are completely and utterly uninterested in money <laughs> um, and that aren't economists and that don't have a natural facility or interest in money because money shouldn't be interested and understood only by those that have a natural interest it needs to be understood by absolutely everyone i and and i think that's the biggest challenge developing that syllabus uh, i spoke at a school recently and it was during a pshe breakaway week i think it was just before the summer holidays um and the students kind of do all these different things to to learn about adulthood before they go out into the big wide world um and my friend there marcel who organized the week um who definitely isn't an economist devised this little half day exercise which and it sounds silly to say it amazed me but it amazed me because it was a so simple but b so different to anything that even 10 years ago i learned in school which was essentially that he pulled i believe i'm paraphrasing here he pulled the average salary that those students would be earning in a job if they left school you know tomorrow um, in that area and then he took things like the average rental value of a property in that area um, and all of the things that you need to pay, right? Council tax, uh, utility bills. Um, and then had each of these students create a budget to show that there are decisions, right? Do you save this money or do you get, I don't know, Netflix and Spotify? Do you, uh, buy this thing? Do you not? And even that, as silly as it sounds, as basic as it sounds to somebody like you or I, um, is just vastly different to what we learned in school about money, which was, I mean, the only thing I remember is like the history of coins back with the Vikings, like, how is that useful? What is yeah. that? Yeah. I, know, I think it is, it is interesting, but it does presuppose that you're generally interested in the subject yourself, whereas you need to, you need to buy and get the buy-in at the back of the class. And the back of the class and also the most economically, financially disadvantaged, those people that have a, well, might, might come to the class with a hate relationship with money because they just see it as a barrier, which it, which it will be in their lives. But money is also this incredibly positive enabler and and I think education needs to turn that round so that 
again, those uninterested actually see it for what it is, which is an enabling thing, not necessarily having lots of it, but it allows me to buy something from you. It allows us to exist together without, you know, stealing and shooting and so forth. How much of this is mindset? I didn't plan to ask this, but just just thinking about the the point that you just made there. So I come from a background where we had basically no money growing up, right? Um, there is a there's a period in my late teens, early twenties where I have a picture on my iCloud of when there's a very particular reason for this. Um, like this isn't illustrative of my whole childhood, but there's a picture on my iCloud where my fridge is empty, right? I don't mean like a few things in there. I mean empty. And fortunately, at a different time, there's a picture where my freezer is empty. And so I, I now run a business, you know, we're transacting with fairly big clients. We're having to make big payments. We're having to invest. We're having to speculate. And the biggest challenge that I have so far faced both in business, but also in adult life, if I can call it that yet, is overcoming this kind of discomfort with money, overcoming this, this willingness to pay for things. Because I always saw money as this incredibly scarce resource. And if you get it, you hold on to it and you don't spend it. And to spend money is irresponsible. Um, and I guess I could have gone down a very different path if I didn't have a business partner who was more comfortable with investing in things or spending money. Um, you know, that would have held me back in life in many ways. How do we, from a more fundamental mindset level, help people feel more comfortable with payments in the younger generations? So we've spoken about why older generations are uncomfortable. What about those who are just getting to grips with their relationship with money? Um, well, I... I... I mean, a balanced relationship is, is, is a good one, isn't it? And you found it in your business partner, and that's probably a, a good mix um, because your frugality is nothing to, to, to be worried about, I don't think. I mean, I think as an entrepreneur, you need to be able to take some risks. So you found the partner that will help you take that journey, and you're probably a useful break on his enthusiasm um, or hers. Um, and, and that's what we all in our, in our own, you know, personal economies need need to create but i think i think this barrier question this um so money you clearly a lack of money is a barrier that there's no question um and the cost of money so if you need to borrow money that's also a barrier and um in consumer credit i think the the easy access of consumer credit is slightly problematic there because we can we can take it out very very quickly particularly with the buy now pay later's without necessarily having credit checks and all, all of that sort of thing and so that we can access borrowing sort of too fast for the wrong things and yet for small businesses it's very difficult to borrow money and that's the wrong way around we need small businesses to borrow money to to grow um but the I think seeing money as purely a negative is is very problematic, and I think it when we we haven't touched on cryptocurrencies, but let's let's just think about money in in the context of cryptocurrencies and why particularly I think sterling euros and so forth are um, enablers and alternative currencies are disablers. So in the UK, we can move sterling one pound from Barclays in Wales to one pound in RBS in the Outer Hebrides, and it gets there immediately for free, my pound to their pound, fantastic. And as a result of that, I can buy whatever I can buy in the Outer Hebrides for a pound and get it sent to me, and people there can work and engage in commerce in the United Kingdom. That is amazing. It is absolutely amazing when you think about it. And remember that that wasn't possible. It wasn't possible for that to happen in the instant 15 years ago. It, in, in my childhood, that wasn't a possibility. You know, 50, I, I can't remember the dates, but, you know, 
Things used to move much more slowly. There was much more fragmentation. When checks first arrived, you could only cash them at the same bank. Then you could only cash them in the same county. Then, you know, then we set up a national clearing system and within a week, a check could be cashed if it was signed in the right way. So the way that the combination of the asset, sterling, and the payment system in all its glory, which includes the banks and the fintechs and so forth, have enabled us to transfer value instantly within the United Kingdom. It's fantastic. There's no risk, there's no costs, um, and, it, and it's fast. And that, that enables the UK to function as it does. Now, if you introduce another asset into the equation or a completely distinct payment system um, with a differently funded kind of asset or a differently backed and protected sort of asset, you, you risk creating two economies within the same economy. And that's, um, which, which would be far worse than, or, or on a far grander scale, let's, let's say, to, to the cash to digital uh, question. You know, it would complicate pricing, it would introduce exchange risks, it would expose consumers to, to you know, in the, in the case that these were private cryptocurrencies, which obviously they are um, at present, to the insolvency of the providers, also you know, the um, time difference from one to the other, to investment risks they don't understand, to all sorts of frictions that just wouldn't wouldn't be beneficial. Now, do, can crypto in other ways introduce benefits? Quite possibly, I wouldn't, I don't discount it. Can digital currencies, if um, if properly backed and regulated and um, and fungible and interchangeable with with the pound in much the same way that your Barclays money is interchangeable with my RBS money. That that's fantastic, and you know maybe it will allow us to process much smaller volumes than we can today, and to pay for you know fragments of things. So I think some of the innovations could be good, but this the fragmentation of money itself into into different forms of money. Um, with different with different backing and and so forth, that takes away the public goods, the enabling aspects that money, fiat, um, sovereign backed money has. And I think if you if if we can, without all of that sort of, um, well, I think if we can explain the societal benefits at the most basic level and what we need money for. And it's not for buying a house or buying a car. It is to exchange value at the most, most basic level and to enable us to economically interact with each other. And it's very, it's very important. It's hugely important. So on this piece about cryptocurrency, I know you pulled me off on the phrase halfway through this conversation when I used the phrase old money. Um, my point is with your background to somebody who is a, a big cryptocurrency investor would be considered old money, right? In a very literal sense, it is in their view, the old version of money. But as somebody who has vast amounts of insight and experience and probably know more about payments than almost everybody who has ever transacted in Bitcoin or invested in Bitcoin. Do you think Bitcoin or cryptocurrency as a as a project even has merit? Like what once the 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 kind of I spoke a couple of weeks ago to Luke Burgess, the author of a book about mimetic desire, this idea that we desire what other people desire and that pushes up the price of things like Bitcoin. When this wave of excitement has gone, are we ever going to see Bitcoin as a payment method as a currency or is this just a fad? Um, well, I think um, I think it's very faddy. Um, I, I don't think that... I think the ex technological experimentation has to be a good thing. I think does it have some, some bad side effects? Um, it can do. 
Um, but if we, you know, if we weren't prepared for that, we wouldn't progress. I think all all the hype and the rent seeking and the um, and the profiteering that's going on is 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 very sad. I think there there, there will be some some good folk out there. Um, there's a lot of bad ones, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, there's a lot of nonsense being spouted out there. But let's come back to currency and what what its point is. It, it, the point of a currency is to enable value to move within your society, in our case, the United Kingdom. And we trust the bank and the government and the laws and the judicial system and all sorts of other things to make all that stand up. And it does. It works pretty damn well. Um, I mean, you could argue that it's one of the best sort of financial systems uh, or a payment system, certainly. Um, although each payment system is developed for its own economy, so that's and society, so it, it's a good boast, but it has its it has its limits. Um, why would something else be better than that? Now, one of the one of the touted benefits of um, crypto is that you can use it to exchange value across borders better than you know going through currency exchanges and so forth. Well, when you want to exchange pounds for euros. Uh, say I'm in Europe and you're in the UK. One of us buys and the other one sells. And you know, but if we did that through Bitcoin, then both of us have to sell our current, our sterling and our euros, and buy Bitcoin. So we're introducing more cost into the equation, or we're taking on Bitcoin risk, and we're just sitting on a pool of Bitcoin to to fund our activities outside. So we're taking on a new risk when actually your risk is sterling, your mortgage is sterling, your you know your company debt is in sterling, uh, your Sainsbury's bill is installing. So you're incurring a, another risk, which is, you know, as a speculator, you might want to do that. But for your day to day kind of current account wallet type of stuff, I don't think you do want to. Um, and the idea that we can supplant our economic societies with something out there that's better, um, I think is, is kind of fanciful. <laughs> um, as we know, nations don't agree on, on, an awful lot of things. Um, and it's not just our governments that don't agree, you know, as civilians, we don't necessarily agree with behaviors in other, other places. So you'd be giving up everything that enables you to participate and all your trust banks in, in the UK, which you might, you know, you might have arguments with many times, but at least you can have those arguments with the system here. Um, but you can't if it's, if it's out there. And if it's out there, who's, you know, who's, who's designing it? Um, and, and what makes them, better than than what you have at home and then the final point is what about those that can't participate in this in this new currency um those that aren't digitally enabled so you could get back to this kind of splintered system um where some of the united kingdom the wealthier in the united kingdom are using one currency um and but if you're only you know if you're only buying a, a third-hand car um then you're using good old pound sterling I, d I, d I just don't see the benefit i don't see the i don't see the upside at all. And I do see a lot of dangers with it, I have to say, especially at the moment. But one of the big problems I think that regulators have is that there's no regulation of language. <laughs> um, and if the word currency wasn't used, then it wouldn't be as misleading. And people wouldn't be thinking that they are buying money or that Bitcoin would ever be a useful payment system. Um, so I want to end on a positive because I have this terrible habit with no matter who I speak to, I always drag the conversation through all the doom and the gloom and the hypothetical. But with everything you know and with everything you've seen um, in the payment space so far, as we look to say, I don't know, the next 
10 years, what gives you most hope about what's about to happen and how it's going to change our, our societies and our lives? Oh, gosh, well, um, I never answer questions about the future. Um, but I think what gives you the most hope is that there's much more attention and interest in payments uh, today, and not just from the industry, I think from outside the industry. And that gives me hope because it's always a problem when you have only experts and financially interested parties looking at things that have impacts far beyond their profit and loss statement. And payments is one such example. I mean, every, all of society needs payments and there, it touches on so many questions. Um, you know, whether it's control, privacy, access, inclusion, all, all sorts of very stability, um, credit, debit, just, just so many different aspects of our, of a wider society. I think it's very important that more people, you know, whether it's, you know, the House of Lords or the House of Commons or, you know, think tanks, newspapers, um, books, um, publishers even. Um, I think it's fantastic that people are starting and people like you are starting to to think and, and look at payments. And when we tried to find a publisher for for our book, um, you know, we, we approached lots and um, lots of agents. And, and I was personally really surprised that we actually succeeded in finding a publisher that was interested in payments um, or interested to publish a book on payments and, and sort of was prepared to go with us on the journey. And it, it, yes, it would have been possible to find, um, and it was, I mean, we, we did have several offers from, um, you know, professional technical publishers, but that's not the book that we wanted to write. It was a much more of a general book because this is such an interesting and important area. Um, so that was incredibly gratifying and it's been gratifying to see, um, the amount of interest that it's, um, that it's got. One of the things that's been, surprising to me is that the rights have been sold a lot into the far east the japan the two chinese language translations korea taiwan um we lots of lots of um translation and book deals over there but not so much in the in the european countries which we're still working on um but they're there where payments have moved very very fast and there's very interlinked economies with you know problematics on the on the exchanges um, without the, you know, kind of the benefits of the Eurozone. Um, there, there's been an awful lot more aware. There is an awful lot more awareness, I suppose, of what's going on and interest in it. So I think what makes me most optimistic is that people are paying attention. Amazing. Natasha Taran, thank you very much for this. I'm going to make sure that your book, The Payoff, How Changing the Way We Pay Changes Everything, is in the show notes so people can go and buy it and learn more about payments. If they want to go elsewhere to see your work, in the meantime, can they head anywhere else? Uh, well, if they go to the website, thepayoffthebook.com, um, they can see what we're up to, You know where we're speaking, other podcasts, where we're being written about or we're writing. Amazing. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.